There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, your weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... The former chief executive of BP, Lord Brown, defends the future of engineers in a world of artificial intelligence. I like to think that AI will do lots of good things for us, but so will humans, and they'll work together. And humans will do one thing that machines can't do. They will be able to imagine freely. And can you guess what this sound is? You can find out later in the show. But first, the rivalry between China and America is being played out in a trade war. The two powers are competing on a global stage. It touches everything from AI to access to resources. Yet now there is a race for China to create the most successful tech hub in the world. China is promoting a tech district that it hopes to be a serious competitor to America's Silicon Valley. It's in the northwest of Beijing, and Hal Hodson, the Economist Asia technology correspondent, has been there to find out more. He joins me down the line from China. Hello, Hal. Hi again. So, Hal, when you had a chance to look around the tech district, what did you see? So the main thing you see is a place in massive flux. I was given a tour around by a tech startup founder called Adam, and he remembers seeing sort of donkeys and carts 10 years ago on the streets. And now there's slick own brand coffee shops and tiny little Warren like offices that you go and start your startup in. And the main impression is of a place that's changing very fast. What are some of the big technology companies that people may have heard of that came came from Zhang Wansan. Almost all of the Chinese tech companies that our listeners might have heard of started there. There's Didi, which is the sort of ride-hailing app. There's ByteDance, which makes the app that in the West is called TikTok, but the Chinese version is called Douyin, which is a kind of AI-curated video stream. There's a lot there. And what kind of technologies are they focused on? There's been a phase of services that you can get through your phone, like Didi is a good example of that. And now some of the new companies are trying to fill niches in existing industries. So a good example is one called Yunhu Health, which gives an app to doctors in small health clinics that lets the doctors order for their patients lab tests. And a dude on a moped rocks up and picks up a sample and takes it to a lab somewhere and gets it tested and you get your results back in a day or two. And it's not, you know, massively technologically advanced, but it's using the ubiquity of smartphones and internet connections to do things in a new way. Now, it sounds like some of these technologies are improving on what happens in physical space. Are you seeing evidence of that? One of the venture capitalists that I spoke to described what China has as a greenfield for these kinds of startups, because 
In a lot of instances, the existing industry hasn't put a huge amount of capital investment into improving the services that it already offers. And if you tried to do that in the West, you'd have to outpace all of this existing money that's already in the system doing the testing. Whereas Yinhu Health doesn't really have competitors. They're operating on their own and they've grown incredibly fast because of it. They're a year and a half old and they operate in 100,000 clinics across China already, which is the kind of growth that Silicon Valley companies get really excited about. And, you know, that's just one company in China. And what about fintech? That's always been a big promise to replace paper money with virtual stuff. The big ones are Alibaba, which has a fintech product called Alipay, and WeChat Pay, which lives inside the WeChat app. And these are just ubiquitous throughout China. I spent time going for dinner with sources and friends, and I would have to pull out a wad of cash. And not just the waiters, but even the friends are like, oh my gosh, you want to pay me back with cash? Like I haven't had cash for three years. And as well as cash disappearing, Adam, who showed me around Zhongguansun, also thinks that the electronics markets that used to be right at the heart of old Zhongguansun, those are disappearing too. It's called the Hall of Players. Mm. We also buy the... Our computer here. This is where your company gets your computers? Used to be. Used to be, okay. Yes. We've got trays of walkie-talkies. Oh, a big security camera yes. section. And But so this is like, this is old Zhongguansun. This is coming to an end. Yes, here is the old Zhongguansun. Why do you feel a bit sad that it's going? I think it's just, just like uh, reading Kindle or reading paper. You know, for the Kindle, I, I have four generations of Kindle. Yeah. But still, if you buy something at Kindle, it means you know what you want to buy. Mm. Search name and you purchase that. Mm. But sometimes you just want to walk around and see if there's anything new. Mm. You cannot just look at the website. But here mm. you can just see, I never see that before. So it's tangible. Yes. Is what you're saying. It's yes. all in front of you. Yes. Okay. And you, don't also, need, you don't need to know what you want. You can discover. You can explore. Yes. So, Hal, what is the Chinese government's attitude towards these startups? The government is very supportive of all things tech, really. I heard lots of stories about especially provincial governments being incredibly supportive of new technologies, adopting them sort of almost before they even understand what they are. There seems to be a kind of leave things alone until they've reached a certain size attitude uh, in, in, in the Chinese market. I think Japan is, you should be, you should be blah, 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 should be this, should be that. And China is, you could be. Yeah. Okay, you could be this, you could be that. Mm. So if you are people, you love rules. And the government didn't care what you do. Mm. Japan is much, much better than China. Right. You can have a really great life in Japan. In China, you will feel like other people always influence me. Yeah. The government influence me. But in the other side, if you want to do something by yourself, mm. you can do that. Because yeah. you could be. Like, yeah. you could be an enterprise. Yeah. You could be a teacher. You could be a... Blah, blah, blah. Nobody really cares what you want to do, but you could be. Yeah. So this is the thing happening in China. More potential. So, yes. When we talk in private, we think what we could be. Mm. That's what we talk. In America, 20 years ago, we had the dot-com boom, which was a consumer internet boom, even though there was behind it a lot of deep tech science around microprocessors and optical switching for bandwidth and networks. What's happening in China? There's science happening somewhere else. But here, it's a consumer internet play. This is probably Zhang Guanzun's biggest problem as a tech hub, which is that very few of the fundamental technologies on which these new digital services are being built are really made in China. China does not produce very many of the semiconductors that it needs to make phones and to make devices that might go in people's homes. And this is Zhang Guanzun's biggest weakness. I don't have the perception that Silicon Valley should be quaking in its loafers 
because although China's doing something interesting, it's not doing something that can't be done in Silicon Valley either. It's not yet. I think that the main reason for Silicon Valley tech companies to be worried is that while it's always been difficult for them to get into the Chinese market, it's getting harder and harder just because the landscape in the mainland, which is the world's biggest market for these kinds of things, tech services, is just getting more and more competitive. And so while I don't think that Zhang Guansun is going to be sort of stomping into Silicon Valley's territory anytime soon, it's increasingly strong in China. And, you know, it does have ambitions to expand beyond its borders. Now, behind so many of these technologies, Hal, is the data economy. It raises a lot of privacy issues. What is the view of the Chinese citizens that you've met about these privacy issues? There's a perception from outside of China that Chinese people don't care about privacy, but that's not really been my experience. I didn't talk very much about privacy, but I did talk to Adam, my guide and the founder of General Intelligence, at a chance encounter at a vending machine, which offered the option to pay with your face if you wanted. It's a very fancy vending machine. Yes, but it's a little bit small. It is. It's slower than a normal vending machine. Yes. No. This is too fancy. I think it's over-engineered. Yes, over-designed. You can pay by your face. Oh, can you? Yes. If you signed up? Yes, but I hate that. You hate that? Yes. Why? Because I know how that works. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think this is my privacy. Okay. So you don't want your face in the database? No. And actually, when you look at the rules that the Chinese government is drawing up around data protection and around privacy, they're quite strong. And I think the reason for this is that without strong rules, you have a very scammy data economy. And that's the kind of thing that the Chinese government doesn't want to happen. And so as far as I can tell, that's the reason why, you know, these stronger rules are coming into place. Hal, so great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Sure thing, Ken. Good to be on. And you can read more about this in the China section of the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Next up, what does the future look like for engineers in a world of robots and artificial intelligence? Lord John Brown is the former chief executive of British Petroleum, or BP, and the author of a new book, Make, Think, Imagine. It looks at engineering and what the subtitle calls the future of civilization. I started by asking him a less grandiose question, and that is, what is engineering? I like to think it's the thing in the middle between discovering an idea and creating something that's useful for people, uh, that can be applied, built, sold into a market. So it makes things live. And is there a crisis in engineering insofar as we have a world of science, but we also have a real world in which things never work the way they're supposed to? Well, they do work the way they're supposed to, but the things we notice are the things that go badly. And so everything is identified with things that go wrong. So whether that's a breach of privacy, 
uh, on the Internet and World Wide Web or whether it's a vaccine that goes wrong or why can't we handle climate change. These things are noted as the hallmarks of engineering, and that is entirely wrong. Now, you must walk around the world as an engineer and also as a business person, but particularly as an engineer, and see all the things that could be made better. Absolutely. Everyone in uh, engineering or ever in business looks at everything and says, you know, I could fix this, I could make it better. But it's a very privileged position to be in because we build on an enormous base of things that have gone right, that have made the world generally a better place, a safer, longer living, more literate, less poor place. So we're building on that and we're trying to do more and more in a way which is good for people and doesn't damage the world. And if you could fix one thing, what would it be? If I had a magic wand, I would fix climate change. But how? As an engineer, what would you do? Well, I know that I have all the technologies available to be able to do that. What I have to do is to deploy them at scale so that they can become less costly and more usable by everybody. So that's what I would do, whether it is more renewable energy or whether it's this apparent contradiction in terms, taking the carbon out of hydrocarbons, which is what we're going to have to do through processes like carbon capture and storage or biological processes that absorb and retain the carbon and let everything else carry on. So if the engineers have cracked climate change, but the world hasn't because there's less political will or economic gusto to bite the bullet and deploy it, what does this say about the limitations of engineering and the obstacles of the engineering mindset to actually affect the world? Well, of course, engineers are not people with all power. We can't do that. What I think is needed here is the ability of governments to take the first risk. In other words, when something is very expensive, it hasn't been used, it is a fit and proper role of the state to take on that risk until such a time as the risk has been reduced and then other people can take it on. And that's what we've got to get right. Now, people have been wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with it for 22 years when I started talking about this as the first oil company CEO who did that. But it's how do you get the right incentives in place? One of the problems we have today is the national leaders who would make a decision around this don't actually even believe in climate change. So regardless of the engineering mindset to solve problems, we have a more fundamental problem. At the same time, the 20th century engineering mindset showed engineers doing heinous things, whether it was bringing people into gulags or trying to have agricultural revolutions that did cockamamie things to the land. Is there a limitation to the engineering mindset to solve our problems? There's always limitation to any mindset because people have to work in teams. Politicians will not take short-term losses for long-term gain. They just won't do it. Actually, most people won't do it. We won't get people to sacrifice. Engineers will sometimes, unless they're well-governed, just say, well, because I can do it, I'll do it, rather than whether I should do it. But I'm not anywhere close to the school of saying, because of that, the end is nigh. Nonsense. Progress has been founded on great engineering throughout the ages. It's had to correct itself from time to time. Let me shift the conversation slightly. We don't need engineers anymore. We have artificial intelligence. Discuss. Absolutely not true. I'm not a great believer in artificial general intelligence because I don't fully believe that we've understood what intelligence is. And I certainly believe we have nowhere near 
an understanding of the human brain. I like to think that AI will do lots of good things for us, but so will humans, and they'll work together. And humans will do one thing that machines can't do. They will be able to imagine freely. Right now in China, they're applying artificial intelligence and facial recognition and have Uyghurs in the western part of China in re-education camps. So it looks as if technology, once again, is being used to squelch human freedom. Does this alarm you? It does. It's not the only story, let me say. There's also now an algorithm which has been able to identify gay people from facial recognition and, I think, movement characteristic to a reasonably high probability. These are terrible things to do. So it doesn't mean to say that all facial recognition is bad. It's not. So the question is, how do we balance those great things with the bad uses? In China, maybe the population you know, doesn't think like that. But for our nations, I believe these uses must be stopped and they need to be policed and regulated. It is a violation of human rights. So therefore, they must be stopped in that regard. And that doesn't mean to say that all technology is bad and that progress has to be stopped. I completely disagree with that. But it's up to us to police ourselves and to police others to stop bad application. People think that engineering is really difficult. But from my experience, actually, working with other people is very difficult. Sartre, after all, said that hell is other people. What do you think? I think engineering taught me a lot about how to get processes right and drive to a delivery. I think my life taught me about people from my parents who were very different, my mother, a Holocaust survivor, my father, a British Army officer. I learned a lot about why the future was so more important than the past and why people behaved badly. I think I learned a lot about that. But I think one of the things that really taught me about people was being gay and being in the closet because it taught me a lot about how to read people very quickly, danger or safe. And that, I think, is something that regrettably I learned by being in the closet. It's very good to be out of the closet now. And so I think a combination of all those things has taught me something about people. I still believe that people on balance are a great thing to have. You know, great people, uh, I think they all really want to do the right thing. Laura Brown, thank you very much. Pleasure. And finally, at the beginning of the program, we asked you what you thought you might be listening to. Need a clue? What if I told you that you were listening to molecules? Can you guess what it is now? What if I told you they were molecules of hydrogen and oxygen? Now, what if I told you it was water? Well, that's the sound of water, according to students at Ilkley Grammar School in West Yorkshire in Britain. They've teamed up with Bradford University and the Royal Society to create what they're calling molecular music, breaking down chemicals into their bonds and signing them a musical note. The more complex the molecule, the more notes to play with. Take, for example, carbon dioxide. Fairly simple, right? Now compare that to my favorite molecular compound, caffeine. 
No wonder it's so good at keeping me awake. But how exactly does it work? Archie Elgood from Ilkley Grammar School explained how he and his classmates make this molecular music. We met him at the Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition in London. In molecules, there's different bonds. When we shine infrared radiation at it, they absorb different frequencies. So carbon, carbon, different to the carbon, hydrogen, so on. And then we get a graph called an IR spectrograph. And how we do that is the frequency of the absorbance can be times by a certain factor, which turns it into an audible frequency. So just something that we can hear. That can then be translated into a note. Using that, we can get different notes from different molecules. So you've got your notes from the chemistry laboratory and you're headed off to the music department. What happens next? Here's another student, Edgar Langley, to explain. We got given the notes that are made from the frequencies from each chemical and uh, because there are five musicians including me working on this and there are ten target chemicals we took two chemicals each and basically the way our creative process was like looking at the notes I think our first instinct for like all of us was to see if we could like make some chords from some of these notes and then make a melody from some of them and because of the sets of certain notes like some of them are slightly weird and like most don't really fit in a certain key it allowed us to like explore different styles with them. So what are some of the other things that they have made music out of? Well... We've got stuff like aspirin. Carbon dioxide, water, you know, your basic kind of molecules. And then we've got undergraduate reactions used to make stuff like trans-dibenzacetone, polythene, phenacetate. Today, more scientists are looking for new ways to explain their data. And rather than turning to graphs and charts, researchers are thinking about engaging methods that they can use to explain their findings. Even here on Economist Radio, you may remember that we sonified data on the gender pay gap and played it for you on The Intelligence, our daily podcast. So why molecular music? I'm Nicolas Barry. I'm a university research fellow from the Royal Society, and I'm also a senior lecturer in inorganic chemistry. Hello, I'm William Martin. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Bradford in chemistry. So we wanted really to bridge arts and science and to show that you don't have to be very specialized to understand complex things. And working with students from uh, Ickley Grammar School was a great opportunity to show that chemistry can be explained in simple feelings, you know, because you feel the music and students are great for this. Music's universal. We all know how we feel when we listen to a particular piece of music. And we think it's an ideal way of getting people interested in the science underlying the music and the chemistry that we've done to create that music. Well, that's music to my ears. And it's a nice irony. It's come for a circle. The original musical staff was considered the first data visualization in history because it showed time on one axis and values on the other. In that case, tonal values. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.